Okay, so we're really going to get into it this morning. Uh, But before we do that, let's ask for help. Lord, there's a heaviness to this passage, as there often is, as we open up the scriptures. And um, so we ask, Lord, for help. We ask for help as hearers of the word. And I pray this morning, Lord, would you make us joyful hearers? There are words of revelation. They reveal you. They reveal your heart to us. So often, Lord, we hear your words, and when they're difficult to hear, when they seem very stark, when they seem uh, to bring conviction, instead of seeing that as a grace that leads to repentance, our hearts can harden and we can hold you off. I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that we'd listen. I pray that we'd listen with joy even to the hard parts. I pray that by your spirit you show us mercy in Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so playwrights, uh, novelists, writers in general, especially in the Victorian era, you know, like early 18 to mid-1800s, would often seek to answer a question in their work. And I've talked about this before, you know, this example in previous advents of like the work of Charles Dickens. He sought to answer this question almost uniformly in his work. When you read what Dickens writes in various places, he wants to answer this question, are you your brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, what are you doing for the poor? What are you doing for the oppressed, the marginalized? And more importantly, what responsibility do you have for them? Not just what are you doing, but like where do your responsibilities fall? And those questions certainly ring true in his short novella, A Christmas Carol, where his answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for your fellow man. You are responsible for your fellow image bearer. But there are two additional questions, one of them even more central, that Dickens uh, sets out to answer. And that one in particular, both of them, I think. We've never had the chance to explore them together here, but we actually don't typically this time of year for some strange reason. First, what is it precisely... He sets out to answer this question. What is it precisely that people are saved from at Advent? Okay, that is to say, if human sin is as serious as we all know it to be like we talked about last week, if like what we said last week in Revelation 6 is true of us and our need, okay, if sin is that serious, if the consequences on this world around us of sin actually is as devastating as we read, it actually is as devastating as Scrooge in the lives of other people, right? As Dickens lays out for us in that character. And if, in fact, we actually are guilty of these realities, then the question is, what do we actually deserve? What is the horror that we're saved from at Advent? Okay, so have you ever asked, why would Dickens, why would Charles Dickens think it would make for a good Christmas tale? To tell of a ghost visiting a man on Christmas Eve with a dire warning of judgment. And not just judgment, but eternal conscious torment. I mean, any, any um, retelling of it that you watch, and certainly the, the novella itself, it's actually, that's what it is. It's e- eternal chains, eternal suffering, a deep sense of eternal regret. That doesn't sound very Christmassy. It doesn't seem to jive with our contemporary culture's approach to warmth and European markets and friendship and family and lights, you know, um, all of which I think to an extent proclaim an aspect of the gospel. I'm not saying these things aren't good. We should celebrate in those ways. 
But what about this, this story of eternal conscious torment? It's, it's, always, it's always somewhat humorous for me to watch the children's versions of, of A Christmas Carol, like Mickey's Christmas Carol or uh, The Muppets, which I love, you know, but I've got, I've got some experience here, you guys. And um, when we come to this section of Jacob Marley warning Scrooge of eternal conscious torment, uh, it's, it's, it, sometimes it gets a little awkward. Like, the warning is at the center of the story. So there's no way, like, without this part of the story, it doesn't make any sense. It can't just be some kind of, like, minor warning. It, it doesn't make sense unless Marley visits and actually gives this dire proclamation that he gives them. Because otherwise, why would the angels visit? And why on earth would he care? Right? So, like, the people who made these kids' movies realize the story doesn't make any sense unless you have... This is for Marley, unless he proclaims everlasting torment and judgment. <laughs> but, like, they don't want to freak kids out. So there's always, like, this attempt to soften it, where, like, Goofy is Marley. Um, those two old guys, you know, who yell snarky things from the balcony, are in Marley and Marley, and that's all the singing I'm going to do for you today, um, are, are in the Muppets Christmas Carol, you know, and they try to soften it. But they actually also speak like really freaky words where like the kids are like, oh, you know, and I think that's okay, you know, but young kids watch this for the first time and there's, they're kind of freaked out. So, so, you know, you might ask, why did Dickens make this so central to the story? It is because on some level he seems to really understand that, just like you can't tell his story without a scene of proclamation of judgment. You can't tell the Christmas story the story of Advent, you actually won't understand any of it unless you understand how badly your need is for it, as we talked about last week, and unless you understand what it actually saves you from, like what Advent actually keeps you from. And in addressing that need, Dickens sought to ask, what was it that we truly deserved? What is it that Advent, the Advent of Jesus Christ into this world really saves us from? How desperate is our circumstance? And for him, he would argue, our circumstance is desperate, so he addresses what we're saved from at Advent. But the second question that often gets overlooked, not really in examining Dickens' work, but the gospel, is this. For those who are truly saved, what is it that they're saved to at Advent? In other words, I mean, I think sometimes we talk about the gospel in, in the Western Christian church as merely wrath avoidance, right? And for Dickens here, the story isn't simply about avoiding the pronouncement of judgment from Marley, but going on th- through life as though everything is the same. You know, it's not like at the end of the story you see Scrooge going, fine, you know, like, I'll do what needs to be done. I guess here's my charitable donation, Tiny Tim, let's go to the doctor. You know, he doesn't, that's not the end of the Christmas story. It's not this like begrudgingly doing the right thing, but actually a kind of transformation that Dickens believed in apparently because what we find is, is a kind of transformation that's moving to me every time I watch different retellings, every time I read the story. It's striking and actually it's filled very purposefully with new humanity kinds of language, kinds of imagery, new humanity. Not only was Scrooge saved from a certain stark reality of judgment and wrath, he was actually given a new reality, a new humanity, right? And in our text this morning, we see the writer of Revelation focusing our attention actually on the exact same two questions for us to consider at Advent. What is it exactly that God's people are saved from as a result of his work 
for us as a result of his coming, as a result of his dying and rising, as a result of his second coming that we long for and wait for with great anticipation. What are we saved from? But additionally, the the text will ask us, what are we saved to? As those who now know and commune with this God and who will commune with him for all eternity. In other words, I think this text will position a challenge to any who might just see wrath avoidance as the mere category of gospel. Because the best news in the text is actually what we receive, which is him. Okay, I don't want to give too much away. But to say it another way, last week's text ended with a question. If you remember, we looked at this scroll. It had seven seals on it. Each one finally being opened. You know, and as each seal is broken, part of the contents of the scroll come to pass. Part of the judgment is revealed to us. So each of these seals has something to do with judgment. And, and each one, in each one, we talked about recognizing our deep need for the coming of Christ. Because I think that's the theme. Recognizing our deep need for Advent. So we looked at the depth of human frailty and depravity. The depth of our deservingness of judgment. And I, just, I should just say at this point, with Revelation, if you, if you miss a Sunday, that's okay, right? I, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the previous weeks. Just because, um, I'll, I'll do my best to give a summary, but because some of the images here are so repetitive and complex, things like the scroll with the seven seals, you're not going to know what that is in its full capacity unless we kind of go back and listen. But the summary is this. The first four seals that were broken on this vision of the scroll contain, I said, the coming of, I argued, military conquest, Civil unrest, famine, and death. Those are the first four. And I said that these were past, present, and future realities, so they have something to do with the first century in a unique kind of way. Right? First century readers were dealing with this unique kind of way. They describe life between the advents, between the first and second advent, and they describe a future reality that is yet to come. Right? So, uh, then the, the fifth seal showed us Christian persecution. Again, unique to first century, life between the advents and a future coming persecution. And then... At the breaking of the sixth seal, we saw the coming of what I would describe as the day of the Lord. Really, this is ultimately what this points us forward to. It's what people call the eschaton, the end, the last judgment, the final judgment. And it ended with a question. Do you remember? Do you remember? Okay, listen. Listen closely to the end. I'm going to start at verse 12 if you want to just page back to chapter 6 real quick. Chapter 6, verse 12. And then listen to the question at the end. Here's the description of the day of the Lord. Followed by a question. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth and the great ones and the generals... The kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of their wrath has come. And who can stand, right? Who can stand? So we said that in a unique way, that question was central to our text last week. In a sense, we got an initial answer to that question last week. But here's the question now that the Revelation sets up to answer in a more complete kind of way. So chapter 6 ends with this question, who can stand? Chapter 7 now sets out to fully answer it. Now, of course, the answer in chapter 6 is that left to ourselves, right? On our own, 
No one can stand. No one can. That's the answer. None of us. We saw that last week. That's, that's all of our need for Advent. But now we actually get to chapter 7 and we see some standing. And as we see their identity come into full focus, we find actually that the first half of chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, the purpose of it is to answer this question, what are these people saved from? And then the second half, verses 9 through 17, answers fundamentally the question, what are they saved to? When, when Jesus comes again, when the world is finally put to rights, but first we have to figure out, you know, who are these people? Okay, so let's start with the first three verses. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So let me just say a word real quickly at the front end here about sequence, because it's just worth saying, uh, because it's a really good example of it. So throughout Revelation, what you're going to come to find is that you'll see this phrase. Look at, look at verse 1, these first two words, after this. So after this, after this, after this. This is going to be pretty common. But there are two ways to really understand this in Revelation. Both of them are present in Revelation, and you need to know about it. One way to understand it is a sequential narrative. So this happens, and then after this, this happens time, in terms of a timeline. This happens, then after this, this happens, then after this, this happens. But in, in some of it, it's actually not sequential. It's simply saying this vision doesn't follow it in terms of a time sequence. This vision is simply the next vision that John sees. So he's saying after this vision, I now saw this vision. Both of them, are, both of them happen in Revelation. All right, so there are moments where there are narrative sequences, and there's a lot of that. Where actually in the, in the vision itself you find a sequence. You find a narrative that's unfolding in the text. And I think that there's, uh, that, that's, that's valid. Then there are other times when, like I, I would argue this morning, here in verse 1, it can't be a sequence following the last one because in the last set of texts, at the end of chapter 6, you see the final judgment. You see the day of the Lord. And now you start chapter 6, verse 1, and we've almost taken a step back because the angels, I will argue, are actually withholding these four winds that are going to blow, the the end of the Lord. So this is the next vision that John is seeing. And I only say that to say that we're, we can't really read an outside system onto the text. And I, th- I think that people on all sides of various positions in Revelation tend to, to read sequence or not sequence, not based on what the text is doing, but on the basis of their the, sort of the outside structure that they're trying to fit the text into. So there are times when there's clear sequence and people say, oh, no, that's not sequence because it doesn't fit with their outside view. Then there are other times when people say, that's, that's uh, uh, totally sequence when it's not, like this morning, in order to make it fit into an outside view. My only point is to say, anytime we see after this, we have to look into the text. We'll find our clues as to whether it's sequential or not in the context. And this morning, I think it's very clear that it's not sequential. As I said, I think here we go from this description of the day of the Lord to now a description of... What happens right before that? Okay, so here we have this interlude between the breaking of the sixth seal and the seventh. Following the final judgment, the author wants to answer the question of chapter 6, who will be separated from the wrath of the Lamb? And here at the beginning, we see these four angels, 
four corners of the earth, simple way of expressing the entire world, and the four winds of the earth stand pretty clearly for judgment that is to come. Okay, a final judgment. You start to see kind of, right, like we're starting to see, but how apocalyptic literature works. There's a lot of symbolism, and symbolism is adopted oftentimes from like Old Testament texts, and and we get this language, four winds of judgment coming out of places like Ezekiel, which also has a lot of apocalyptic language in it, in which we read uh, of four winds coming from the four quarters of heaven upon Elam to judge, right? So this kind of language of four winds from four corners symbolizing judgment, it's pretty common from within the Hebrew tradition. But here, the angels are actually holding back the wind. Like They're responsible for the pouring out, and they're able to hold back at God's command. And so another angel appears with the seal of the living God, the seal that when you see it, you know who it belongs to, right? So he comes with the seal. And he instructs these other four angels on the four corners of the earth not to bring any harm, not to release any harm, not to release God's judgment until, until they've sealed the servants of God on their forehead. So this moment in which, you know, these earth dwellers are crying out, let the mountains fall on us rather than face the Lamb, before that happens, before that wrath comes to bear, this angel says, oh, hang on, wait until we've sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Throughout Revelation, what does this mean? I've noted already. We see, here's really the the central meaning of this. We see this imagery, this message that's really black and white. Here's what it's really getting at. You either belong to God or you don't. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this this morning. You either belong to God, actually, or you belong to Satan. You either have God's seal on your forehead or the mark of Satan, the mark of the beast. And here we see those who are given the seal upon their foreheads. The seal on a forehead, this, this kind of image, it's not literal. Again, this is apocalyptic literature. It's actually drawing on very common first century imagery. It was very common for a slave to have a mark on a forehead that signified ownership or allegiance to whoever owned them. And for various, um, even pagan deities, to have a tattoo on a forehead or on a wrist that signaled allegiance. Again, as we'll see, it, it also applies to the mark of the beast on the forehead. I argue that this is symbolic in the exact kind of way that the seal on the forehead is because it's meant to be a contrast. And it's symbolic in a way that a first century reader absolutely would have understood the imagery. Allegiance. Ownership. Who owns you? Who, who has claim on your life? This is how a first... The idea that the mark of the beast would be a future literal mark on a forehead in, in the first century quite simply wouldn't have been entertained by a group of people reading apocalyptic literature, I would argue, because they already have many people with marks on the forehead. They, they understand the meaning of it. They understand the meaning of it. This is what I meant in the introduction to Revelation in the very first sermon that we had together in which I said that in an, in an ideal world, before we even get to Revelation, we'd read a few, a couple hundred pages at least of like Old Testament Jewish apocalyptic literature like the book of Enoch before reading Revelation, so that we could get used to how symbols are used, how they're not used. The idea that the mark of the beast, for instance, would be a microchip or a barcode or a QR code on the forehead, it's just not congruent at all, either with what the first century reader was thinking or with how apocalyptic literature has ever worked. And my argument is that that actually dehistoricizes the symbols. You know, we're supposed to take Scripture literally when the original author is writing to an original audience intending to be taken literally, right? We, 
we're, we're supposed to take the reader the way they intend to be taken. In this case, my argument is they intend to be taken symbolically. So John tends to be taken symbolically. So what does the seal upon the foreheads here in Revelation 7 symbolize? Well, both according to how the symbol itself functioned in the first century, how it's going to continue to function in Revelation, very much so. Along with the context of this chapter, it seems pretty clear to me that the sealing on the forehead symbolizes protection and provision of certain salvation for those who belong to God. It's a seal. The seal itself doesn't actually come with a guarantee that these people will avoid wrath. It's very important to understand this. The seal isn't isn't a, a guarantee or an indication that these people won't avoid wrath. As we'll see, those who have, God, have God's seal on their forehead, they will face wrath. They'll face wrath of the Antichrist. They'll face wrath of the enemy. They'll face wrath of the world. But they won't face the wrath of God. Those who have the mark of the beast upon their heads, they won't face the wrath of the Antichrist. They won't face the wrath of the world. In fact, they'll, they'll be given accolades by the world. We, we already saw some of this happening in these first century churches that were being addressed. You know, many of them are receiving accolades from the world. And, and John, Jesus was telling them, you'll, you'll face wrath. You'll face wrath from God, right? So people who have the mark of the beast, they won't face the wrath of the world, but they will face the wrath of God. And so part of the symbolism here and throughout Revelation really is meant to position these things next to each other and ask you, whose wrath would you rather face? Would you rather face the wrath of Satan or the wrath of God? Would you rather face the wrath of people in this world who persecute you or the wrath of an almighty God? I mean, this is a serious question that's undervalued, I think, in evangelical culture. We don't consider it the way that it needs to be considered from within the Western church when we're so easily persuaded just to sidestep the wrath of culture, just to to appease culture, to get the accolades of culture at the expense of truth. In Revelation, you you just don't do that. Whose wrath would you rather face is this consistent question. And when we put this off as this future thing, we don't see that this is the reality that we have, we have in front of us right now. Like this, this has everything to do with our mission as a church. This should put urgency before us as a young church who set out on this journey in order to see non-believing people come to Christ. Those who don't know Christ need to know Him. It puts out a certain urgency for those of us who are Christians, who claim to be Christians but who live like the rest of the world. Which mark do you possess? Right? Which, which side are you on? Which, which wrath would you rather face? There is an, if, it, it sets out an urgency for you if you're here this morning and you're a non-believer. If you're someone who rejects Christ, there's an urgency here for you. It's a serious question. Which wrath do you want to face? So this entire section is the author's answer to the question posed at the end of chapter 6. Who can avoid the wrath of God? The answer, okay, it's those who have God's seal upon them. But it's not so easy, right? Because now we have to ask, who is it that has God's seal on him here in Revelation 7? And he answers that starting in verse 4. And I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay, stop there. Who are these 144,000? All right, it's important to understand. A few, just a couple brief remarks before I give my perspective. Even those who hold, okay, like, Nearly all commentaries, at least in some sense, to some degree, view this as symbolic. 
a number that's a symbol of something. Okay, so even those who hold to a, the majority of those who even hold to a very future, what, what, what I almost hesitate to use the word dispensational is, is the word. Um, you'll he, I'll unpack more of what that means moving forward, but a future understanding of Revelation, the majority of people who hold to that view will often see this number actually not as a hard number, but as a mostly symbolic one. And that's because numbers like this, especially in Revelation, are routinely used um, for at least some form of symbolism. Outside of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't find a ton of views from within Christendom that this is a literal number. Of course, um, we're talking about some kind of symbolism. The question is, what's it symbolic for? There are some who say this is referring to a Jewish remnant yet to come. Right? So like a revival from within Judaism. And I, I have to say, I, res- I respect this view quite a bit. It goes right in line, you could argue, with Romans chapter 11, in which Paul essentially argues the same thing. I think it's important to say pastorally that this is a... We're getting into parts of Revelation in which Christians can very much disagree. I'm going to push back hard on some views. I don't do that to denigrate the views. I do that... Um, don't listen to me. Don't take my word for it. I, I do it to get us into the text. As someone who's changed my mind on a, a, a lot of things in Revelation since I started out um, in pastoral ministry um, in 2006, I've, I've changed my, my views on a lot of these things. Um, I think it's important to let the text and not some kind of outside system influence us. So I just want to challenge us, get, get into the text. I, I respect this view um, and I, th- I find a lot of, it could, it could be right, and, and I could be wrong. There are others who say that um, here we have a, not just a remnant of Jews, but those who will come to faith in Christ and Israel during a specific seven-year period of tribulation at the end. That this is sort of a, this revival in Israel will be a signal that um, this tribulation is happening and that the end is, is coming um, into the future. And we'll get into some of this down the road for sure, but I don't find this convincing for a few different reasons, some of which I'll have to save for future chapters. But one problem here is the number itself, and the other problem, I think, is how the number is used for that viewpoint. Okay, so 144,000. This is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Like, like, if you were to, to try to construe as an author, like if you were trying to think about, or, if, or even Jesus in revealing this to John, let's say that, trying to come up with a means of express, expressing completion. This is pretty near perfect. Not just 12, not just the 12 tribes, right? But 12 times 12. But not just that, you know, not just like, and, and you know, this is often seen as like 12 tribes of Israel representing God's people in the Old Testament. Also 12 disciples and subsequent followers of Christ in the New Testament. But not just 12 times 12, but also 12 times 12, then times 1,000, which is a number symbolic throughout the Scriptures and here in Revelation of completion, the complete people of God. And then when we get to the numbers and names of the actual tribes, it becomes even, for me, harder to take this as only a portion of God's people because this isn't a normal list of the 12 tribes. Dan is omitted. We could actually... Nowhere in the scriptures do you find the, the tribes listed this way. Nowhere else except for right here. In Revelation chapter 7, Dan is omitted. We could say probably Dan is omitted because um, of idol- the people of Dan's idolatry in the Old Testament, though we don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. 
Um, Judah comes first. I think we can say why that's the case, and we'll have more to say on that in weeks ahead. So, um, and then it's strange on a number of more levels, because not only would you normally expect to see a list of 12 tribes the way that ethnic Israel would have organized them, but if you were going to substitute the sons of Joseph for Dan, you would expect to see Ephraim and Manasseh, but instead you see Joseph and Manasseh. And, and we, don't, we don't really know why. The, the text doesn't tell us, but I think all this indicates even more that this is symbolic of what God is doing in Jesus to draw people to himself. In other words, in this list we see Judah first. Why is Judah the firstborn? Because of Christ. Well, what has Christ done? Well, this is why at Advent we see the genealogy of Jesus, including both ethnic Jews, those from outside of Israel like Rahab and Ruth, together. Ethnic Jews outside, together. It's why in Revelation 3, we've already seen, and it'll happen again in Revelation 9, but Jesus calls those in Philadelphia, says that there are ethnic Jews in Philadelphia who are part of what he calls the synagogue of Satan. And he says, even though they're ethnically Jewish, they're not actually Jews. That's what he says. They lie. They lie. They claim to be Jews. They're ethnically Jewish. They claim to be Jews, but they lie. They're not actually Jews. And that the true Jews, the only true Jewish people, are any and all who call upon the name of the Lord. So Jesus in Revelation 3 is contrasting between, if you remember, false Israel, false people of God, those who were ethnically Israel, but they rejected Christ, so they're false Israel. False people of God. And those who are the true Israel, the true people of God, most of whom in Philadelphia were not ethnically Jewish. Right? But like Rahab, they're the true Jewish people by nature of their faith in Christ. This is exactly what Paul wrote about when he said, as we've referenced before, and there are just too many sections of these kinds of scriptures to get into, but for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision Decision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter, His praise is not from man, but from God. And so when we see this 12 times 12 times 1,000, this like if you were to configure a number that talked about the complete picture of the people of God, I would, I would argue that this is, this is about as good as you can get. <laughs> you know, In this work already in which Jesus has been clear that the true Israel belongs to all who call upon His name and not ethnicity, we start to see the complete people of God as a much more convincing interpretation, from my perspective, of this identity of the 144,000. In other words, here we have all the saints of God across the spectrum of human history, all of those who've called upon His name, all of those who've confessed faith in Christ. And this is not replacing Israel with the church every now and again, just to give you a heads up. You might hear someone like on the radio say, oh, well, there are these replacement theologians out there and be careful for those replacement theologians because they're heretics this is a this is a derogatory term this is a you never heard it until the 20, 20th century kind of term um, in which like just so we're all aware this would make john calvin and jonathan edwards a dis, you know a heretic you know a, a replacement theologian because this is how they would have interpreted this is how they interpreted revelation in terms of these these numbers okay so we're not talking about replacement here's what we're talking about we're talking about replacement. We're talking about what Israel has always been. Not primarily an ethnic identity, but primarily a spiritual reality found not in the blood of man, but only in the blood of Christ. This is what Paul preaches. Now, does that mean that God is done with ethnic Israel? No, I don't think so. I read Romans 11, and I agree that there will be some kind of continued future redemption. I think we see that every year as Jewish people come to faith in Christ, but um, I don't think that's what we're looking at here. In fact, just on a practical level, 
I would argue it can't be a literal remnant from the 12 tribes because there are no more 12 tribes. In other words, the reason Mary and Joseph could trace their lineage back to David as we recount the Christmas story is because of the detailed records in the temple of the time that showed what tribe they were from. But the temple was destroyed. Those records were lost. And you might say, well, God still knows who the 12 tribes are, but this is kind of missing the point because since the lines were lost, the lines weren't preserved. So what do the lines even mean anymore? Having said that, that, I think that is a big problem for that view, but it's not the main reason that I discard it, because if, if the Bible taught it, God would find a way to do that, right? The main reason isn't practical, it's biblical. In terms of how apocalyptic literature operates, in terms of the symbols and numbers, how they operate, in terms of the list we're given, and really in terms, my linchpin is going to be chapter 14. Because when we get there, it becomes even harder to dispute that 144,000 is the entire people of God. When we get to chapter 14, it actually says... All of the, this is a rep- representative number of all of those who've been redeemed from the earth. And that's why there are some people, because I think you have to, who toy around a little bit with, well, what we must have is two different 144,000s. One 144,014, that's all the people of God, and one 144,000 in chapter 7. I think you'd have to do that. That's how strong the language is in 14. I was tempted to unpack some of that, but I'm going to eventually preach on that, and I don't, don't have a lot of time. Okay, so... Um, All of this, I think, shows us, no, what's in view here in chapter 7 is a symbol of the complete people of God, sealed by God, protected by God, spared from His wrath, and the case for that is about to get even stronger in just a moment as we transition verses. But the point the author wants to make now is simply to say, at least on my view, these are protected from God's wrath. The day of the Lord that we just saw at the end of chapter 6 These four winds of judgment at the beginning of chapter 7 that's about to blow upon the earth when God's wrath finally pours out, none of that will fall upon the people of God. This is really good news. None of this will fall upon the people of God. So the first question in the text seeks to address what what are we saved from at Advent? And we see that we're saved from wrath for all time. And actually, we're going to get back to it again. This isn't just something to kind of like shrug over. This This is a reason that's a very central theme. And it's actually one of the things that makes the gospel such good news. Because this is what we were all deserving, and yet this is what Christ did. So then the question is, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, because the question is, how? Like, what is the alternate vision for the people of God? If the the earth dwellers experience this judgment at the end of six, what alternate vision is given to the people of God? In other words, what are are we saved to at Advent? Starting in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand. Okay, let's just stop there for a minute. Here we have, I think, in this context, even more evidence that the 144,000 are the complete people of God. Because this is how John has already operated in the book. If you remember in chapter 5, John hears about a lion. Then he looks, and he sees a lamb. So he hears the angels proclaiming this thing about the lion who's going to be victorious. It says, he heard, and then he looked, and he saw this lamb. It's talking about two different, the same entity, not two different entities, right? It's not like he heard about this lion that was a different being, and then he looked and saw the lamb. The lion and the lamb are the same thing. Two different ways, symbolically, of expressing the same person, Jesus Christ. And he's doing that, I I would argue, here. We see something similar, where if you look back at verse 4, John hears the number of the 144,000. He hears about this 144,000. Now in verse 9, he looks. So he hears, now he looks and he sees this great multitude. Two ways of speaking about the same reality. And we'll see more of that kind of movement in Revelation. But here we see it, right? The complete 
people of God is made up of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's everyone whom God has preserved by His seal and called to Himself. Whereas many waved palm branches the way that a king, they, they would greet their conquering king as they rode back into their city. While many waved that, those kinds of palm branches for Jesus Christ when He rode into Jerusalem, not understanding what the king came to do, that He actually came to die and to give His life for them, that He was born to die. This multitude knows and understands very well what he came to do because they've experienced his salvation. They don't cry out, Hosanna. They don't cry out, save us now. Now they cry out, salvation has come. Right? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and all the angels. We're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. It's really striking that not only do they worship, like not only is that the activity that we see for these people of God, you know, following being spared God's wrath, not only do we see this like eternal sense of worship, but everything about this worship of men and angels. What's another example of when we see a worship of men and angels in the New Testament? Advent, right? When Christ comes, first comes, and now we see a worship of men and angels. And just like that song of the angels, it actually expresses how it's possible that they now stand there in God's presence. It signals how they have not just avoided wrath, but entered into his kingdom. Salvation belongs where? To our, to our God. Salvation is the Lord's. That's, that's what Jonah cries out, right? Salvation is the Lord's. It's not, it's not ours. He saves. We don't save. It's the, these people aren't sitting around the throne singing, singing like, so glad I'm so smart that I figured this out that others didn't. You know, they're not like, like, glad I didn't sleep through my logic class so that I was able to really get the gospel. You know, like, that's, that's not what's happening here. They, there's no ground on which to boast. They're not Christians because they were good candidates for Christianity. They're not Christians because of something they did. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has done this. It hasn't come about through human hands. And finally, we see that while they had to endure the wrath of the beast, they had to endure the wrath of this world, they had to endure the wrath of persecution, not only were they spared God's wrath, but now they live in a kind of communion with God that leads to an unspeakable joy. Starting in verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's another verse that I think demonstrates why we can't just limit this to a few people, but I'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so what is this, first, what is this great tribulation in chapter 7? Okay, so it's important to understand, again, one of these areas where there's multiple views. It doesn't offend me in the least if you push back against mine. Um, Again, the purpose here is to get us into the text, right? We, We need to hold these things with a humble hand, uh, but I, I will, I'll, I'll push for my view a little bit this morning, but it's important to understand the way the term tribulation is used is kind of interchangeable in scripture, so that sometimes Paul will use this word, flipsis, meaning um, tribulation, but actually more generally persecution, and that's what he means, is that persecution is going to come to the people of God, okay, we're just more generally speaking, but then there's something of an event that's talked about throughout the scriptures, 
It's in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. It's here in Revelation. It's called the Great Tribulation. And so the question becomes, the interpretive question is, what is it? What is it? Well, as I alluded to earlier, some would take this to be a literal seven-year period that is to come in the future right before Jesus establishes his millennial kingdom. Okay? Now, I do believe, again, like I think this is a biblically defensible view. Um, if you hold to it, that's perfectly fine. Let me give you some reasons why I don't find it convincing. Just to clarify, I do believe that Jesus will return to establish a millennial kingdom on earth. We're going to get to this in chapters 19, 20, 21 a little bit more. 20 being the, the big place where we'll talk about it. But I do believe in what's, what's called a premillennial return, that Jesus will return, establish a kingdom, and then comes the end. So I, I'm going to argue for that, at least so far. Right? Um, that's my plan. Uh, but when we get to the text that deal with the seven years, especially when we get to chapter 13, I'm going to argue that these time periods are actually very much standard apocalyptic symbols. Okay? I think these are standard apocalyptic representative symbols that they're not meant to be taken as a literal future seven years that comes of this tribulation. Standard numeric symbols in Jewish apocalyptic literature, I think... Maybe I've got a chance of persuading some of you. We'll see. Um, okay, when we get to that point, come back for 13. All right, I'm not going to... Why? Uh, yeah, okay, I'm not going to just spill my guts to you now. You've got to come back for it. What's it standing for, then, if that's the case? Well, for now, let me just tip my hand a bit and say, I take the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24 and here in Revelation 7, again in 13, to refer to all of the years between the first and second coming of Christ. This is how I interpret the Great Tribulation and... In Matthew and Revelation both, I think, it probably also has some special first century significance with with relation to the destruction of the temple, the Jewish wars, everything that kind of followed from that, the subsequent destruction. But the Great Tribulation continued past that. It describes the reality of living in this world as a follower of Jesus Christ, living in this world between the advents. This is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, the world will give you trouble, but I give you my peace. It's not future trouble. It's trouble now. This is what, it, what, what he meant when he prayed that the Lord would keep them from the world but protect them from the evil one. Now, I, do I think that it's very possible that as we continue on and that one of the things this, these scriptures could be demonstrating is that there is still yet an increase in persecution yet to come as the end draws near? That's very possible. That's very possible. But I think here's what we have here. Those who've been... Those who have God's seal rather than the beast's mark will avoid God's wrath. Taking wrath from the world, many of them will be persecuted and die as a direct result of their proclaimed faith in Christ. We said this last week, but more people have been martyred for the sake of Christ in the name of Christ in the last 200 years than in the prior 1,800 years of Christian history combined. That's reality. So many of them will stand before Christ, enduring countless sufferings as a direct result of their proclaimed faith in Christ, but they will be saved from God's wrath and enter into a new reality, be granted a new reality. Verse 15, Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Listen to this, listen to this. They'll serve him day and night in the temple. Oh, by the time we get to the end of Revelation, we, we come to find out that the temple is no more. 
So what is this talking about? Well, it's symbolic. Actually, the language literally means that God's tabernacling with his people. What does this point us to? Emmanuel, God with us. That when we're in eternity, we'll experience this Emmanuel, God with us, in a complete way. That Emmanuel came, that he was born, right? God with us. God put on flesh this moment of incarnation. God became a man. He dwelled among us. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place. As a substitute for us, he rose to a new life Then he invites us into. And now, just like hundreds of years of church history, hundreds of years of God's people, prior to that first advent, crying out for Emmanuel, for God with us, and then he came, we along with them cry out on this side, experiencing God's presence, God with us now, for the perfect completion of that in which day and night... He shelters us with his presence perfectly. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Wait, the lamb's going to be a shepherd? Do you see the imagery here? What kind of a lamb is a shepherd? Right, the lamb needs to be shepherded typically, right? Like a shepherd wouldn't leave a lamb in charge. <laughs> it, it seems so backwards. But this is the picture of the God-man, right? Men aren't gods, right? Men can't save men, but this God-man can. Lambs don't shepherd. This lamb is the shepherd because just like all of us like sheep had turned astray, each of us had gone our own way, each of us deserved judgment and death, he went to the slaughterhouse instead of us so that we might have life in him, right? And so there's something of a question in Revelation Do you have the seal of God or not? Friends, this is the urgency of the text. Do you have the seal of God or not? Do you belong to Him or not? Is He your Savior or not? Is He on the throne or not? Or have you put yourself on the throne? And the way to answer that question is found in verse 14, which is another reason that I have a hard time limiting this group to either a seven-year period or 144,000 Jewish people because, listen to this, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is all of us. Have you... Who've put their faith in Christ? Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? Is what this text pleads with you and asks you. Have you trusted in His completed work? In other words, you are in fact due God's wrath. All of us are. But Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved on the last day. The wrath that has the earth dwellers in chapter 6 eager to have the mountains fall upon them rather than meet the wrath of God. He took on that wrath for all eternity. Punishment, death upon Himself at the cross in that moment so that we might have life in Him. That we might wear his seal. That we might wear up white robes and that we might actually find the, the true good news of the gospel, which is our shepherd. Him. Right? Him. And this is why we come to the table to proclaim this reality weekly. And so I invite you, come forward, take the elements, bring them back to your seat. If you're a non-